Hey there, and welcome to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one crisp page of Talmud a day. In today's page, Yevamot 37, the Talmud asks a simple question. Suppose a man dies and his brother marries the widow. What happens to her firstborn? Have a listen. The Mishnah states that the child of the Yevamah, or the widow, has unflawed lineage, since regardless of whether it is the offspring of the deceased husband or the Yevam, his brother, there was no transgression involved in its conception. With regard to this case, the sages taught in a Baraita the first child is even fit to become a high priest. However, since it is possible that the child is the offspring of the deceased husband, in which case the widow remains forbidden to the Yavam as his brother's wife, if she has a second child with her Yavam, with her dead husband's brother, then that child is a mamzer, or a bastard, due to an uncertainty with regard to his status. Ah, again, the Talmud confirms what the Bible has been telling us since at least Jacob and Esau. Birth order matters a lot. Firstborns are in it for the long haul, thick with privileges, sure, but also burdened by so many duties and responsibilities. And Passover's right around the corner, so there's no better time to think about firstborns. What with that last plague and all. On our flagship podcast, Unorthodox, we had some thoughts about firstborns and whether they're fit for the priesthood indeed and why it is customary for them to fast the day of the Passover Seder. Have a listen. When we came up with the idea for this episode, I realized I was in a bit of a pickle. The concept, after all, was getting back to basics, leaning on tradition, doing things you've never done before or at least haven't done in a very long time. And me, well, I'm the bearded guy in the group, more orthodox than un. Passivers in my family are hardcore. We search for chametz with a feather and a candle. We read the whole Haggadah, even the part that comes way after the meal. And we add poems and song lyrics and other decidedly modern commentaries of our own making the ancient texts feel modern and the modern stuff feel timeless. So what, I wondered, what could I possibly do to lean in even more on tradition? So I did what any good nerd would do. I hit the books. And that's when I was reminded about Ta'anit Bechorot. Hebrew for the fast of the firstborn, it's mentioned in Tractate Sufrim, one of the minor and non-canonical parts of the Talmud or collection of Jewish oral law. The firstborn, it tells us, are obliged to fast on the day of the Passover Seder, from sunrise until the festive meal is served. Why? Well, it's sort of obvious, ain't it? There is no magic cure, no spell to use. He's the firstborn of Pharaoh. We have no skill before this pestilence. It's all very straightforward. Hashem smote the firstborns of Egypt and spared the lot of us Jewish firstborns, which is why we should take a moment before we imbibe those four cups of wine and give thanks. 
So there it was, my new old tradition, the one thing I haven't done yet and could now do to make this Passover extra meaningful. I was getting ready to fast. Wait a minute just there. Why? I mean, if God spared the firstborns of the Jews, and if you're a Jewish firstborn, shouldn't you, like, be happy? Shouldn't you be entitled to a, I don't know, a fifth cup and a good l'chaim, celebrating the fact that you weren't, you know, dead? Back to the books it was, only to discover that no greater rabbinic authority than the 19th century eminence, the Chatam Sofer, whose son, coincidentally, was my own great-great-grandfather's teacher, had similar thoughts. The Jews were spared, the Khatam Sofer wrote in one of his seminal works, so why no party? To even attempt to answer this question, you have to know two things about firstborns in the Bible. First, for our forefathers, being first was sort of a big deal. Which one of my sons are you? I am Esau, your firstborn, and I have done what you told me. Please sit up and eat the meat I have brought. Then you can give me your blessing. Come closer so I can touch you and make sure that you really are Esau. I mean, the entire Jewish people are named Israel, which is the nickname of Jacob, who only rose to prominence after he cheated his older brother out of his birthright. That's how much it mattered. To be the firstborn meant you got to inherit the best parts, not only of your father's possessions, but also of his title and spiritual heritage. It mattered a lot. How much? That brings us to the second thing you need to know. Originally, the idea was that every Jewish family would give up its firstborn son to God and that these boys would all serve in the ancient Hebrew temple in Jerusalem. It was a good plan while it lasted, which wasn't very long. Watching the Israelites prance around the golden calf, Moses realized that it took a special sort of character to stay true and pure which is how we got a special class of divine servants, the Kohanim, or priests. And that, the great 20th century Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Oyerbach teaches us, is the real reason why firstborns fast on Passover. Passover was the day in which the priests were busiest with sacrifices. And the poor firstborns, seeing and smelling all that roasted meat being offered up to God, they must have felt terrible knowing that it could have been them up there in the temple, all decked up in white and manning the grill in the world's holiest barbecue. So terrible that they could do little else but fast, thinking about what might have been if their ancient ancestors weren't so hooked on all things golden and bovine. Okay, so this made sense. I was supposed to feel sad because I couldn't be a priest in the temple. But there hasn't been a temple in nearly 2,000 years, so where exactly did that leave me? 
What were my responsibilities as a firstborn now that the notion of being shipped off to Jerusalem to keep the altar smoking was out of the question? I'm an only child, so being firstborn is sort of a cheat in my case. I'm also the only born. I needed some wisdom on what it meant to be the oldest, how those who arrived first and had siblings saw their sacred duties. So I turned to two of the wisest authorities I know. My children, Lily, age 10, and Hudson, age 8. So, Lily, I'm trying to understand this idea of firstborns and what kind of responsibilities they have and how how they see their place in the family. Have you given it any thought? No, not really, because I try not to think about whether that I was born first or not. But I like to think that sometimes that, like, I get to stay up later than my brother or I get electronics before my brother. As you look up and contemplate your firstbornness, do you have any resolutions, anything that you want to think about and really try to do? Um, I would like to, like, try to work on keeping my temper and, like, If Hudson does something that annoys me, no matter like how small, I would like to like be able to hold my temper in better. As the younger brother, do you have any pointers for Lily how to be a better firstborn, a better bigger sister? No, she's the best sister ever. I was thrilled to hear things were going well with those two, but... I didn't quite feel like I got the answer I was looking for. If I was going to fast, it needed to be about something more than being grateful that I have an iPad. I needed to find some deeper meaning for fasting. Or, you know, find a way not to fast at all. And apparently, you could get out of fasting by reading a book. You know, it it is a fascinating question because we don't have that with other fasts. You can't say on Yom Kippur, well, let's say I read the prayers, do I have to fast? Or any of the other uh, minor fast days, for that matter. We don't say that reading takes the place of fasting. That's Dr. Erica Brown. She's the director of the Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Hernstein Center for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University. So I called her up to learn about this magical loophole. Study a text you love. And presto changeo, you could throw yourself a seum or completion, a festive meal marking the end of studying a beloved book, usually a Talmudic tractate, a festive meal that means you don't have to fast. It has something to do with the particular time that we're in. We just welcomed the month of Nisan. And on Chodesh Nisan, we don't say certain supplicatory prayers that put us in an existential, rather broken and vulnerable state of mind. We sort of embrace the happiness of the time. And I think fasting generally is a very ancient, very biblical response to tragedy. And so on the one hand, We note the tragedy of the death of firstborn in Egypt. And at the same time, that's not the death of us. It's the beginning of us. And so there's something about beginnings 
that's represented by the Hadron, the Siyum and the Hadron. What do we say in Hadron? I will return to you. Hadar in Aramaic is to return. Texts influence our lives and we're constantly returning to them. And when we return to them, it's not that the text changes, but that we change and therefore our interpretation of it changes. So in a certain way, if you wanted to participate in a communal ritual that notes the death of something and the beginning of something, you can understand this sort of charming jump from fasting to actually learning, completing and continuing. That made perfect sense. And it left me with clear marching orders. Find a book I loved, study it, celebrate a seum, no fast necessary. But which book should I study? That wasn't so easy. I could turn to the Talmud, the obvious choice, but I have this other podcast, Take One, where we read one page of Talmud a day anyway, so I can't really claim that I've been studying it, especially for Passover. That would be cheating, and cheating is something you do not want to do the day before Passover, what with the big guy being very clear that slaying firstborns is definitely on the agenda. So instead, I decided to turn to my favorite book. And favorite book is an understatement. This one is an obsession, a lifelong dedication. The reason I taught myself French and immersed myself in the lives of obscure 19th century composers and contemplated bidding on original manuscripts I couldn't even remotely begin to afford. Marcel Proust's masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time. What's it about? It's complicated, so complicated that it's literally the sole subject of a great Monty Python skit. Newport for this year's finals of the All England Summarized Proust competition. <laughs> As you may remember, each contestant has to give a brief summary of Proust's a la recherche du temps perdu, once in a swimsuit and once in evening dress. I could talk about this book all day long and tomorrow too. I could tell you all about its truth and beauty that won't be relearning, and I won't be doing the thing I set out to do here. So I sat myself down, poured myself some nice Bordeaux, and read, and read, and read. And then I called one of the very few people whose thinking and writing about Proust unfailingly delights me, the author of the masterful Call Me By Your Name, and other books that have brought me immense joy. The novelist Andre Asima. Teach me, I asked him. Teach me about our beloved Proust. Well, most of us think of Proust as the man who is devoted to memory, to the Dreyfus case, to his semi-Jewish background, which he is Jewish, his mother was Jewish. We, we also think of him as a homosexual, as a person who led a very reclusive life, basically spending the rest of his life remembering that wonderful life or that life that made sense to him via the book that he was writing. So that life was not that beautiful, but at the same time, he found beauty in it precisely by writing about it in a style that remains unforgettable and probably the very best style that any writer of any epoch has ever matched or could match, put it that way. 
There is, however, one aspect of him that I find unbelievably strong, and I've been devoting my time to doing that. It's what I call, pardon me, the chicken moment. You would never associate that with Proust. But there are scenes in Proust where he is basically analyzing the perverse or cruel motives of a character. And the first such moment that I can remember is the one where his maid, Françoise, uh, is killing chickens. And as she's killing the chicken, and that is not irrelevant to Passover, because after all, we do drink chicken soup on that night. But she's basically not just killing the chicken, she is murdering it. And she says to the dying chicken, die, you filthy beast, die. And you never would say, think that this is typical of Francoise, because the product of that awful, wretched moment, turns out to be the wonderful chicken with the sweetest sauces that one could ever imagine being cooked by this woman who essentially committed murder. And, and so he was very interested in those contradictions. He's always interested in contradictions. But the chicken moment is essentially those moments that we all remember when we read Proust. Yes, we remember that he had a madman and that from the madman he would resurrect his entire past. But that's not really the real Proust that I have become totally fascinated by. I am fascinated by the man who describes a girl in the kitchen who is forced to cook and to peel asparagus because Francoise is the boss, of course. She's the head cook in the household. And she forces that poor girl to sort of, what is it, épluché, uh, to basically peel or clean the asparagus. And she knows that the girl is, as, is allergic to asparagus. And she was eventually forced to quit her job at the Proust household because she couldn't stand the asparagus that were actually beautifully cooked every night. These are the moments that basically ring so powerfully with me today. In a year or two from now, I will probably move to something else. But there are millions of scenes like this, where it is the tangible, unforgettable moments of plot. that, And they're really, truly plot, a brute plot, that sort of ring true to me. And they are the, the most magical thing about Proust today. And there it was. I wasn't just reading to meet my obligation and avoid the minor unpleasantness of a few hours without a nosh. I wasn't even indulging in some interesting but pleasantly minor tradition. Instead, I was getting right to the heart of the matter. Passover, Andre helped me realize, was the chicken moment writ large. In the middle of the glories of the Exodus, Hashem wants us to see him in his most murderous, taking those innocent firstborns of Egypt and smiting them. When we celebrate the delectable dishes served at our Seder table, none sweeter than freedom, we are commanded also to remember the moment that preceded it, far darker and more ominous, the moment of slaughter. One is never possible without the other. Why? Oachim, 
a noted 18th century rabbi, offered an answer. And no surprise there, it had to do with, you guessed it, us firstborn. The point of the 10th plague, he wrote, wasn't about killing the firstborn of Egypt. It was about asking the Israelites to offer a sacrifice to God and use the blood to mark their doorsteps so that Hashem knows which homes house Jewish children, which homes should be passed over. In taking the step, Orachim wrote, the Israelites rose to the occasion. They took action. They offered the sacrifice and in doing so, set themselves apart from their wicked neighbors who happily benefited from an evil empire predicated on Hebrew slavery. God obviously didn't need the blood on the doorposts to tell the Jews apart from all the others. The creator is omnipotent. He is all-knowing. He doesn't need a primitive form of ID to help him on his vengeful task. The marks on the doorposts weren't for him. They were for the Israelites inside, who had to make a decision about what kind of people they wanted to be. Did they want to continue and live in fear and subjugation? Or did they want to live like firstborns with all the privileges, but also, as my 10-year-old will tell you, all the responsibilities that go with it? They chose wisely. They chose to be firstborn. And we're all here because they did. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay and Quinn Waller. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Mark Oppenheimer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, Robert Scaramuccia, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at takeone.fiomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic, and we will see you again soon. Take one.